Hi, everyone. This is Olga Matt, building the future of contracts from home, still from home. And today I'm talking to my very good friend, Phil, whom I've known for as long as I've been practicing law, almost as long. Mm. And he has been my mentor and help along the way. Phil, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Strauss. Uh, I've been in the Bay Area for about 20 years, been practicing law for a few more years than that. Um, was in Chicago and New York before that. Um, and most of my time in the Bay Area, I've been in-house with tech companies. Um, I began my in-house career with a company called Brio that we sold to Oracle. And from there, moved on and have done stints at Adobe, uh, Actuate, which became OpenText, Market Tools, which was sold to SurveyMonkey, uh, H5, Health Fidelity. And then my latest... Um, Position began, I think, seven years ago at Ebates, which we sold to Rakuten. I left for a little while, but came back. And the last, uh, I would say the last five or six years of my career have been uh, more focused on sort of the uh, compliance end of things than the strictly legal end of things. And so currently, I'm the chief compliance officer for the America's operations of Rakuten, which is the big Japanese e-commerce client. Most people in the Bay Area think of it as the company that makes Steph Curry's shirt, but really we're a, a diversified e-commerce and media company moving into mobile, um, fintech, uh, a lot of exciting things going on at Rakuten. Um, and uh, my scope of responsibility is the Americas, so that includes Canada and Brazil. What I want to talk to you about is Law, uh, the role of lawyers um, in compliance. Uh, you've been a former GC, you know, the compliance officer, that, that divide and, and navigation of the two is very interesting to me and I would like to explore it. But before I do, I notice you have a very subtle background. Um, I pride myself to have a really cool background, see how my shirt matches with what's on the screen. Um, but you, you, you have a cooler background. Tell me about your background. So my background, um, this is not a stock uh, Zoom background. Um, you know, most, most of the people it seems are using the, the stock Zoom Golden Gate Bridge background. Um, if I didn't have it, you would see uh, the, the alley that runs between my house and the next door neighbor's house. And there are a few uh, guitars and, and uh, foam rollers back there. But um, this background is from, I'll brag on my 10-year-old daughter, Phoebe, um, and her art project. And I call this the Van Golden Gate Bridge, which because I think it's, uh, it's if, if Vincent Van Gogh had, had painted the Golden Gate Bridge, it probably would have looked something like this. But I'm really proud of her. We're really proud of her. Uh, and I'm just thrilled to have this as my uh, background. That is a really cool, it's, it's a very dynamic, both, both in composition and colors, um, and the strokes, I, 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 I love it. I, it's, it's, it. It actually manages to upstage you and feel you're impossible to upstage. Uh, you're a man of a, of a big personality, so uh, she did something right. Uh, yeah, she, she did. She, uh, she upstages me uh, every day, so uh, I'm, I'm always... I'm always happy to yield the, the stage to her or any of my other children. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, being uh, 
an attorney or a legal leader or a former general counsel versus being in the compliance role? What, what, is, what is the upside of each and uh, what is the difference? Well, so I think, um, you know, if we're all in one big circus, um, when you go from being a general counsel or a, a pure legal leader, there, I'll call you, you're, you're the tightrope walker, right? It's all about balance, balancing the law on the one hand and business needs on the other. When you become a, a compliance officer, you have to be a juggler. You still have to manage the law um, and you still have to manage accomplishing business needs. But then you have the third thing that you're trying to keep in the air, which is ethics, which is not written down. It's kind of what's right. Um, and, you know, with all due respect to, to the legal department, because I, I was one and probably will be one again in, in my career, um, as we'll talk about going back and forth. But the, the way I put it is that the, the ethics is certainly on your radar as a legal leader. Um, but if it's legal and it moves the business forward, sometimes that's, that's what you do. Um, and when you're uh, an, an ethics and compliance officer, all of a sudden the ethics piece moves front and center into your calculation. Um, and so that's sort of the main difference is that you have this, the, the ethics and compliance, the, the, the what is right that is not written down becomes much more important and central to, you, to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, the other thing I would say, and, and, and obviously, again, all due respect to uh, general counsels and chief legal officers who, who are engaged in the culture um, conversations because they're at the executive level, the cultural conversation also moves front and center uh, rather than just sort of being on the radar. And the culture of tone at the top and mood at the middle um, and making sure that, that this, these, again, largely unwritten rules of, of, of doing what's right or doing what's best for, for um, the world um, at large um, have to be uh, exemplified and lived, uh, you know, by leaders from the top down to the, you know, the, the, the middle management and then pushed down uh, throughout the company. So, so it, it's, and it's not always comfortable, right? I think a lot of us in 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 law got into um, in, into law because it it had more. Um, I mean, there there are a lot of bright lines and arguing. Um, you know, uh, it's not all black and white, but arguing shades of gray and things like that. But a lot of us um, really. Are, can feel a little uncomfortable when it comes down to culture and, and building a culture, right? We, we build a culture a lot of the time in our legal departments. It's about um, doing your work well, doing it um, quickly uh, and doing it in a way where 
the the clients in the company or you know the 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 people in the company want to come back and they don't dread working with you um but this is much more about corporate culture um and really trying to uh you know what kind of company do we want to be and i think we've all gotten there quicker um with with privacy right uh because Privacy is a, a place where legal and, and compliance overlap. There's not, um, you know, if, if you're going to be a, a, a privacy professional, you have to know the law and you have to know how to get people to comply with the law. But, but we're all part of this conversation about what, what kind of company do we want to be with data? Do we want to be aggressive with data um, and, and, and monetize it as best we can? Or do we want to be conservative and, uh, you know, essentially uh, make our make our 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 reward uh, on the on the reputation, which will hopefully lead to more um, revenues and more profits, but not uh, indirectly. So I love this analogy of the tight uh, uh, tightrope and the juggler and the juggler. Uh, so which one do you like? I like them both. I mean, I really think if, if you're going to simplify the the world in in Silicon Valley, at least, in, um, there is certainly and, and, and the the hiring in legal and compliance in Silicon Valley, uh, it's divided. I don't know whether it's fifty fifty or or something some other distribution, but I do think there is a school of thought in Silicon Valley about legal and compliance professionals having a very specific trajectory to get where they are. And, and when a company is looking for the person who went to an Ivy League law school and graduated, you know, it was, was order of the coif and, and then uh, um, was the, you know, executive editor of the law review and then took a, you know, became a, an AUSA or went to the DOJ honors program or the Department of State and, and did, you know, some, some years of government service and then came and went to a, a top New York law firm or Washington, D.C. law firm for a few years and then moves in-house at a, at a big company as head of litigation and, and works their way up. There are people in Silicon Valley who are looking for that kind of trajectory. And then there's others um, who are saying, well, you know, I, I actually like the idea of uh, a lawyer who, who took a few years off and worked at a consulting company, which, which is something that I did and did work, but also had to develop business because that, that person, when I bring them a, a sales contract, understands that it's not just about negotiating and quote, winning uh, you know, this number of clauses in negotiation, it's about getting the deal done and getting it done quickly and making sure that the, the VP of sales can meet his or her numbers and that they have visibility into what the potential pitfalls of this, this contract might be. Um, and so I think that that part of the, of Silicon Valley that, that, is more about a well-rounded person, someone who you know, spent, spent five years as an engineer before they, uh, before they became a lawyer, 
um, and and doesn't want to be a patent lawyer, but just so uh, there there's part of the world that looks at that person and just says, you know, the fact that that he or she spent five years as an engineer, that experience is going to help them to be such an effective product lawyer because they've lived it. And so when you take these deviations, whether it's, you know, going to work for a company like KPMG for a few years or going to a blockchain company for a few years, right? I mean, uh, these are in, in a non-legal role, just to, you know, pull something out of the air, um, that there are people who are going to appreciate this. And, you know, you can't, you can't satisfy both, both, uh, both groups, right? If you, if you want to take that straight trajectory, there are going to be a lot of jobs that, that you're going to be more um, suited for, at least on paper. Um, but, you know, if you get uh, those companies where they want someone who is more well-rounded, who has stepped outside their comfort zone, who has, you know, taken some chances and failed um, or recalibrated or reinvented themselves, um, I think you're going to be more uh, successful in that world. And so, you know, going from legal into compliance is not like jumping all the way over to the product side or all the way over into the business development department. But it is a deviation. I do think it's going to become more appreciated just as, as the compliance role, both from a corporate compliance, as well as from a sort of data governance, privacy compliance has escalated in importance in boardrooms and in executive suites in the last few years that perhaps that, you know, if, if the distribution is 50-50 over companies that are looking for that straight trajectory versus more well-rounded, maybe that's going to shade. Maybe maybe 40% want the straight trajectory and 60% want the, the people who have stepped out of their comfort zone and tried something different. I love how you're thinking about the sort of the scenic route and being a well-rounded person. And how going back and forth between, you know, the office of general counsel, whether you lead it or being one of the members of the team and compliance. Um, one of the things you mentioned is this thing, ethics, and the art of doing the right thing um, and how you can really double click on it as a compliance officer or being in the, uh, in the office of compliance officer. How do you think about ethics and what is sort of your framework for figuring out what is the right thing to do? Well, I think you see, when you start as a, I think you start as a compliance officer, I, I, they, they get lumped together, but it's hard to be, you may have a title of chief ethics officer in an immature company, but it's hard to focus on ethics while you're building a basic compliance program. When you start a compliance program and, and, Look, there, there are plenty of companies that don't have a compliance program where, where legal does compliance and they have, they're very compliant and they're very ethical. Ethics always has to be there, but focusing on it is a much more strategic discussion. And a lot of building a compliance program in the beginning is more tactical. When you are in, in, a, in a less mature company, and there, there are plenty of great less mature companies. So it's not a knock on any company, but the companies that have, when you are 
blocking and tackling and saying, all right, uh, when you're trying to enable this conversation at the executive level, I keep coming back to privacy because there are these, you can articulate these principles of what's, what's right, whether it's the fair information principles or the areas of overlap between GDPR and CCPA and, and uh, um, Canadian uh, privacy law. And, and having a conversation about, well, what is, you know, what is data minimization and how is that, um, why is that right for us? It, you know, aside from being uh, mandated, why is that the right thing to do for us? You have to get together a broad coalition or of, of people to start discussing ethics. And I, it's probably easier if you don't call it a discussion about ethics. If you, if you, you know, address, address a very discreet question about, you know, here's, here's the line of what we do with our, with our, what we can do with our data. Why, you know, where do we want to be on that line? How much discretion should different business units have to be at different points along that line? What's our, overall philosophy, how are we going to uh, address being at different points on these, uh, on this line of uh, aggressive versus conservative behavior? How are you going to address that with a, with a regulator? And having that kind of discussion, um, I think is what most, uh, most compliance officers are doing um, except at the largest, most heavily regulated companies. So let's talk about building the compliance department and what it takes yeah. to do it if you say start from scratch um, at, a, at an established company, you know, like, like Rakuten. Um, how do you do that? So I, I uh, um, you know, I, so I began where a lot of other compliance uh, officers begin with you know what was at the time the the you know uh, I think it's roughly eight points of the U.S. sentencing guidelines and there's you know there's the DOJ guidance and and you, know, you start off with a very kind of legal focus to it, which is why you know you sit down with an executive and they say why am I looking at the you know these these summaries of points of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Um, and you know, your, your initial, uh, lawyer reaction is I'm, I'm here to keep you out of jail. Um, and then you realize because you're, you're, you are a, you're in a business role, right? I mean, you're not, nothing you say is privileged. Um, uh, or you don't, you, you, you have to assume that nothing you say with your compliance, uh, officer hat on is, is privileged. So you, you, you're all of a sudden in this business role and you realize that compliance, your function there is to create a business process around these sentencing guidelines. And the minute you stop talking about them as elements of the U S sentencing guidelines and put them rather than in a linear table, put them on a wheel about, you know, policies and procedures and incidents and, remediation and discipline and monitoring and improving the program. And now we're back at policy, put them in a circle and call it a business process. 
doesn't matter whether it came from the U.S. sentencing guidelines or the DOJ guidance or or something else like that, and you call it, you know, the the compliance business process. All of a sudden, executives start to get it, and they get excited about it, and and you plug things into the the wheel of the the, the business process of compliance. What I what I try to do is you can't boil the ocean from day one, right? You're, you're starting with the basics, mandatory compliance training. Okay, well, what, what are the non-mandatory? What are the, the other areas of training that are, that are good for the company without you know, turning into a company where everyone's just doing compliance training? The hotline, right? Basic table stakes. Um, if, it's, you know, if you don't have one, get one. If, if you have one, at least have a, have a good process around it. And then you start moving you know, year by year up the ladder. Okay, now, when is, it, when is the right time for third-party vendor management? Well, with, with all these privacy laws, probably now. Um, conflict of interest management, right? I mean, especially in Silicon Valley. Um, is it okay to be, a, you know, to be at one company and, and have a consulting side hustle? I don't know, some, some companies, yes, some companies, no. Um, but, you know, is it the time to put in software that will track that and get a certification from every employee every year as to what they've got going on the side without prohibiting it? You know, not for a, a brand new compliance program, but, you know, within a few years, that's the kind of thing you need. So you keep walking up this uh, ladder of maturity and you keep assessing, right? And, and when I do my annual assessments of my program, if there's something that I haven't even tackled, I'm not going to put that in the assessment. I'm going to put it on the roadmap. Um, and you can't do everything. Not everything's on the roadmap for next year. And depending on how well you're resourced and what the, the executive's appetite is, you may, you may make only marginal gains every year walking up that ladder. Or you may have an adverse event and all of a sudden vendor management goes to the front of the roadmap when you walk up there to the, to the earlier point that ethics, you will become more, more of your time will be strategic and less of your time will be tactical. As you get a bigger team, as you start to enable more of those executive conversations around, you know, these existential conversations about what kind of company do we want to be in this area? A few times you mentioned this word culture, the tone at the top mm -hmm. and the the um, the mood in the middle. How do you figure out, you know, your culture when you kind of in it? Um, how do you kind of figure out the unwritten rules? Um, I mean, the written one makes sense. Those are policies. I get that. But the unwritten, the culture that you cannot quite touch, especially when you're in it, not as, as an objective third-party observer. Um, how do you figure it out? Well, I think, you know, I mean, almost every company, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's now infamous. The, um, the Enron code of ethics had all this language about, you know, being, having, having the highest level of integrity and, and things like that. So those are, those are words on paper. And I, I do believe, um, and I don't know who, who originally said it, but culture comes down to two things. Who do you hire? Who do you promote? That's it. I mean, if, if when people who yell uncivilly at work, they may be great producers, right? They may be, they may be amazing engineers. They may be amazing salespeople. 
Um, they may be brilliant marketers, but if they don't fundamentally respect the people that they work, who work for them and the people that they work with, and they keep, keep getting promoted, then that tells you that the culture at that company is more about business performance than any of the, the human um, respect for others, integrity, things like that. Um, so it, it, you know, the, when, when you see these, um, incidents and you see what does or does not happen to these people, that tells you a lot about the culture, you, you, you know, that has to be in the, in, 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 in compliance, right. You're not, you're not making a lot of those decisions, right. The chief compliance officer is not the chief disciplinarian, they're not the chief investigator. Um, a lot of the times on, on my incident reporting, I don't even know who it is, right? I, I, you know, and that's by, that's by design. We have to work with people and it's, it's, not, it's not necessary for me to know. I have to do a lot of reporting in the Americas. I have to do a lot of reporting to um, the headquarters in Tokyo. And so it's better to have only the, the the most necessary details. What kind of incidents? How long is it taking to close them? How many are open? Which business units? What you know? At a very high level, is it uh, administrative error? Is it information security incident? Is it HR? I can look at that from that perspective, and and the people who are consuming my reporting hopefully are looking at it from that perspective and saying, are we acting appropriately? without respect to who it is, right? Not knowing, because if they're consuming my report, they don't know. Now, they may, the, you know, the word may have gotten around and they may know who is the subject of a particular incident, but hopefully they don't. And they're looking at these as a whole and saying, are we being consistent? Are we treating a, a, where we have managerial problems? Are we counseling them and then giving them giving them the chance to remediate uh, behaviors that we think are appropriate for remediation, um, especially where they're high performers, but where where there's an inability to change their ways, are we hopefully moving them out of the company? A compliance officer is, in some ways, you're a player, in some ways, you're a coach, in some ways, you're an umpire. But that's when the umpire, you put on the umpire black and white striped shirt and you you throw a, a yellow flag and say, you know what? I, you know, over the last two years, we've had three very similar incidents and we, we, did not we, we we acted in a very different manner. So what what are we doing here? Why are we why are we why are we making an exception in this case? Or you know why are we being a lot more um, draconian uh, in this case? And and trying to have this this idea of of just general fairness um, and are are we are we doing the right thing? Are we um, is is the behavior that we're rewarding the kind of behavior that we want all of our employees to embody, and as the behavior that we are discouraging and 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 punishing, the kind of behavior that we don't want them to embody. Twenty twenty has been an interesting year. I'm not going to say it was good or bad. That would be a judgment. Let's just say it has been interesting, unusual, and not something we normally expect. How did twenty twenty shape compliance function? Will you know? Will it have a lasting effect on building that function? 
so yes, I think um, if I can draw an analogy to some the businesses that have experienced a a lot more um, activity because of uh, COVID, right? Being the certainly the most front for uh, the most notable um, or um, uh, impactful event of, of the zillion events that are and continue to be 2020. Um, most of the compliance officers that I know are part of their, are not just part of, are core members of their COVID task forces. So on the one hand, we're all probably working a lot harder than we were in February. You know, a lot more, especially for those of us who are at global companies. Uh, in the beginning, we had daily meetings with our European counterparts in the morning and our Asian counterparts late at night. Um, and that was, that was every day. That was before we had become used to the changes that are, that are, that are COVID, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the good old days when we were deciding whether, whether we should close our office or, or, you know, someone, three degrees of separation away had, had tested positive and should we, should we shut down the whole office? And then, you know, by the, by the middle of March or the end of March, that was all done for us. And now, you know, we're, we're looking at, do we, do, do we reopen? Uh, which offices reopen? What's our criteria for reopening? What's our criteria for, for shutting them down? We all know much more about HVAC systems and, uh, you know, do we want to test employees before they come back? Um, there is just so much, and, and we've become the, the uh, and I think this is uh, similar for, for uh, the legal departments, but, but because the legal departments are, have very tangible things that they have to follow, which is, you know, what's the reporting requirement if we have someone sick? What's the OSHA guidance? What's the, what's the form of the notice we need to put it on the door of every, you know, every, every office we reopen? What's the waiver that, that people are going to sign what, you know, how are we going to segregate thermometry, mass thermometry data from the rest of employee data? They're, they've got all that. So it's kind of like who at the table can be the, the guru on um, different kinds of testing and, and, you know, the difference between an antigen test and, uh, you know, the other tests that are available and rapid tests and where can we get them and talk to vendors and, and what about contact tracing apps and what about, uh, uh, iPhone wellness checks. So the, the, the compliance departments, the compliance officers that I know about are doing a lot more than they, they would, but we're also getting a lot more contact with executives than we would, um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, daily, if uh, weekly, if not daily contact with probably every, senior executive on the US, in the America's management, and certainly a lot more Zoom FaceTime with our bosses in, in Tokyo. So in that way, it's been, I think it's been a good thing to increase the visibility. And, you know, I would say that there are some out there who would say that compliance jobs can get boring and, and kind of rote. And, and this is certainly for for my team has allowed them to expand into some 
areas that they normally wouldn't get to expand into. So I think it's been, um, you know, it's it's been a good opportunity for compliance departments that are willing, ready, willing, and able to rise to the occasion to take advantage of the opportunity. And hopefully we'll emerge from all this um, with uh, a little more um, or a lot more uh, trust and um, confidence um, and, and capabilities that uh, you know will 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 persist and and uh, prob- hopefully expand our our mandate going forward. Legal and compliance are very much part of the state trust and safety that everyone yes. so much craves that I can definitely see how this role is changing. It's it's very apparent and how I I think it'll be really hard to go back um, to something less than that. And uh, you see a lot of uh, attorneys, general counsel, compliance officers being the 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 uh, the, the executive or the the uh, professional that helps with trust and safety. Yeah, um, one, one data one data point that I see in you know when you when you when you keep abreast of um, of the market is that a lot more GC. So I, I I think traditionally, and as I when I started at, on the in-house side, the West Coast model was that the general counsel reported to the CFO, um, and the East Coast model was that the, the general counsel reported to the CEO. It's not. 100%, but I think that was a, a fairly well-known trend. Um, and then Sarbanes-Oxley came about, um, and I think there was a, a brief uh, shift of general counsels reporting to CEOs, but then it seemed to, you know, kind of after 2000. Maybe it was maybe that trend continued through 2008 and the, the recession, but then it it seemed to drift back, and then I think it was uh, GDPR and CCPA and privacy and data governance, and the fact that you could um, get in a lot more trouble, but with um, loose use of data, than you could by having a restatement, right? Almost, you could, it was almost worse than the financial uh, problems. Um, that it, it's to move back. And I think it's, it's, it's that COVID has probably accelerated that, that, that um, legal and compliance leaders need to be in the, you know, they've always been in the, the second circle, if you, if you will, but now they need to be in that core inner circle. Um, at least, at least part of the time, and have visibility into what's going on. A core inner circle of executives, um, and the only way to ensure that is to have them reporting to the CEO. So, say you're a legal professional. Do you think there is a way to smoothly sort of transition back and forth between legal and compliance functions, or do you think one should specialize? What, what, what is your kind of feel of the situation? Um, I think it's, it's a personal choice and an appetite for risk. Um, 
it's, you know, I would, I would tell someone to, you know, live your own professional truth, right? If you are going to be, if you want to see a whole bunch of different things, um, in your, in your professional life, um, then, and you're willing to take some risk for that, just know that it will, you know, when, when doors open in our careers, other doors shut. And that the minute you sort of step off this straight, legal, traditional Ivy League uh, law school to, you know, prestigious New York or Silicon Valley law firm, maybe a, a little stint in government, um, and then, you know, monetize it in, a, in, a, in an in-house, take a, a, a very senior in-house job, stepping off that trajectory may disqualify you for those jobs. And that's, that's okay, right? But you have to, everyone has to make that decision for themselves. I think there are a lot of people in, for example, financial services who that trajectory can change on you, right? Because all of a sudden after, after Enron and the other sort of mid-2000s uh, financial scandals, all of a sudden everyone, including myself who never did a, a department, you know, a, a Department of Justice or AUSA kind of law enforcement stint in their career was essentially disqualified. Even if you had been doing all the other right things for those jobs, they they wanted to hire former federal judges, former AUSAs, former Department of Justice people to kind of give this sort of uh, shine of of, of uh, you know, of integrity to the, the legal department, rightly or wrongly, um, whether, whether that, whether people in those roles are best um, suited to lead a corporate legal department was sort of beside the point. Um, so I, I guess that's my way of saying that, you know, you could be doing everything right and the rules may change on you. Um, and so for me personally, I mean, I began my career as a litigator, and then three or four years after, you know, uh, a state Supreme Court clerkship, I had two um, older brothers who were both corporate lawyers, and I had no idea what they did. I mean, it seemed dreadfully boring to me. And there I was, I decided I didn't like fighting with people all the time, um, and didn't really want to be a litigator for the rest of my life. And so I became a corporate lawyer. And all of a sudden, I was joining my, my older brothers pushing, you know, as, as Someone put it to me, starting with a paper on the left side of my desk and ending the day with papers on the right side of my desk. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I did that for a few years. Um, and knowing that, that I did not want to be a, a partner for a big, you know, New York um, corporate practice, um, but that I wanted to be in-house and I wanted to be in tech. And, and that's what I did. And, and I've been able to step away into business roles and step back and still be very successful as a, a general counsel. And I've stepped into, you know, privacy slash compliance roles. Um, and who knows? I mean, uh, you know, very happy at Rakuten. Um, but at some point, you know, we all, we all end up doing different things. And, and I could see myself moving back into um, a general counsel type role. Hopefully the, the, the market out there will, 
will see the benefit of that as, as well. But maybe I'm, you know, maybe at some point you've, you've, uh, you know, maybe at, at some point you've taken too many turns. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing as taking too many turns. We're close to the end. I love this conversation and I love the kind of going back and forth and how you think differently and how it's a little bit like riding a bike. You can go back to law, you can go back to compliance. If you um, were giving, uh, if somebody wanted to be a compliance uh, officer um, and they're a lawyer, uh, whether they're a young lawyer in the beginning of their career or a more mature lawyer in the middle of their career, what is one or two things that you would recommend that they do if they were considering being a compliance officer? A couple of things. One is when you when you move into compliance or you know if you were to move into to privacy, keep on top of changes as if you were still a general counsel, right? So still when you get you know all the the ACC invites and all the law firms and all the vendors invite you to the the uh, the webinars, keep on top of your labor laws. Keep on top of uh, privacy, even if that's not your your area. Keep on top of uh, corporate laws and and you know um, new ways of of going public and things like that. So don't change your you know your 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 your, your, your CLE should go up when you're when you're out of the general counsel's office because you've got your your new core area of privacy or compliance, but you've still got to keep up with all the others. So that's number one. Um, and if you don't want to keep up with all that other stuff, then you probably don't want to be a general counsel anymore. Um, so that, that can be instructive as well. Second point I would say is compliance as a business process. And you can substitute privacy as a business process. Is learn about, you know, when you're in a, the legal department, people are going to expect you prefer to use Word over, over PowerPoint. Point, right, you like to write um, on, a, on a piece of paper that's shaped like this, and not a piece of paper that's shaped like this. Um, when you're in the compliance world, people know you're a lawyer, but you you are much more of a business person. You're you're an odd business person, but if you can come to it with um, feeling comfortable making a flowchart, using Visio, learning what a swim lane is other than in your workouts. Um, uh, be comfortable with a Gantt chart. Be comfortable with, with these ways of communicating that, um, that, that business people use um, and, and get, a, get a, a business person, you know, trusted business person, uh, not, obviously not in the legal department to help you with like, hey, my new boss, what is he or she like? You know, show me, you know, talk to their assistant. What are the last five presentations that they that they did for Japan? What kinds of you know? Do they like the circles? Do they like the you know the 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 pyramid? Do they like the pie charts? Do they like the you know? Find out how they want to communicate, and then put what you're doing into their language. So that's that's the second, um, and then I guess the third is that you know, if you read the, uh, you know, especially the latest DOJ guide, guidance on corporate compliance programs from probably August, it's about, 
you know, if, if I had to summarize it in two words, it would be evaluate, improve. So um, while in the legal department, you always want to be improving. Um, and I think in the legal department, you measure improvement as, you know, how many more contracts did we get through? How many more, how can we leverage technology to, you know, to, to, do, um, to serve more clients with, um, you know, while not uh, having to grow the team, scaling the, the, you know, the output of the, of the legal team. Um, on the compliance side, compliance has got to be measured every year. Uh, and and the, the DOJ guidelines say this, you have to evaluate how well are we doing? You don't have to be perfect, but where you identify weaknesses in your program, you have to be improving them year to year. And you have to be able to demonstrate that. And that, I guess that's related to the business process is, is along that wheel of, of, you know, policies and implementation and um, uh, incident management and discipline and remediation and improvement. How do I show that, right? When the, when the regulator comes in, how do I show him or her, this is where we were last year. This is where the risk assessment identified the risks. Here's the, how we prioritize the risks. Here's how we mitigated those risks. And not all of them. Again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but we took the top five. We, you know, new policies, new procedures, new vendors. And here's how we showed improvement. And then we did it all over again. Um, I mean, we're just now doing our annual risk assessment. And this year we have 100 more questions. We have more than doubled the size over last year because that's how much more complex the world is and how much more in depth we are thinking about, about risk. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if, if we, if we add a hundred questions next year, the, they may, they may run me out of town, but um, you know, you can't do that every year, but um, you know, this year when we looked at what the risks were and, and, and trying to evaluate them, we had to ask a hundred more questions and that's, across 12 different business units. So that's 12, 1,200 uh, risk assessment, additional risk assessment responses that my team will have to comb through and try to come up with some big picture recommendations. So um, if you don't like that, um, don't become a compliance officer if you don't wanna build something and rebuild it and keep improving it. So if you're, if you're a tinkerer, um, and, and you, you like just making things better and fine tuning things. Uh, maybe, maybe we should be looking, you know, in, in our, in our descriptions of, of people who built cars, um, and, and, uh, or modified their, their, their guitars or things like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're looking for the wrong, wrong types. In, well, it sounds like compliance is a little bit like going back to your picture of painting a golden gate bridge. You finish painting and you have to start all over. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I, I learned Thank so you. much from you um, and certainly have gained a much greater appreciation of the compliance uh, function. This was very helpful. We should do it again. We, we should. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you, Olga.